Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and I'm back with my co-host, Nachi Gupta. This month, we're moving from the trauma bay back to a more private setting to discuss emergency department diagnosis and treatment of sexually transmitted diseases. And let me warn you, for those of you who follow along the print issue and might be reading in a public place, this issue has a few images that might not be ideal for wandering eyes. Yeah, I'd say we need a, quote, not safe for work label on this episode, though I think we are one of those unique workplaces where this might actually be kind of safe. And we're obviously pushing for safe practices this month. The article this month was authored by Dr. Fenning Bass and Dr. Bridges from the University of South Carolina School of Medicine, and it was edited by Dr. Borhart of Georgetown University and Dr. Castellan of Eastern Connecticut Health Network. Thanks, team, for this deep dive. STDs or STIs are incredibly common and often underrecognized by both the public and healthcare providers. In addition, the rates of STDs in the United States continue to rise, partly due to the fact that many patients have minimal to no symptoms, leading to unknowing rapid spread and an estimated 20 million new STDs diagnosed each year. Treating these 20 million cases amounts to a whopping $16 billion, $16 billion worth of care annually. And 20 million cases, it's really kind of scary if you step back and think about it. Definitely. And perhaps even more scary, undiagnosed and untreated STDs can lead to infertility, ectopic pregnancies, spontaneous abortions, chronic pelvic pain, and chronic infections. On top of this, there's also growing antibiotic resistance, making treatment more difficult. All the more reason we need evidence-based guidelines, which our team from South Carolina has nicely laid out after reviewing 107 references dating back to 1990, as well as guidelines from the CDC and the National Guideline Clearinghouse. All right, so let's start with some basics, pathophysiology, pre-hospital care, and the history and physical. STDs are caused by bacteria, viruses, or parasites that are transmitted vaginally, anally, or orally during sexual contact or passed from a mother to her baby during delivery and breastfeeding. In terms of pre-hospital care, first, make sure you're practicing proper precautions and don appropriate personal protective equipment to eliminate or reduce the chance of bloodborne and infectious disease exposure. And those with concern for possible sexual assault, consider transport to facilities capable of performing these sensitive exams. As in many of the pre-hospital sections we've covered in the past few months, a destination consult would be very appropriate here if you're unsure about the assault capabilities at your closest ER. And in such circumstances, though patient care comes first, make sure to balance medical stabilization with the need to protect evidence. Exactly. So moving into the ED, the history and physical should be conducted in a private setting. For the exam, have a chaperone present whose name you can document in your official EHR. The five P's are a helpful starting point for your history. Partners, practices, prevention of pregnancy, protection from STDs, and past STDs. Hmm, five P's. I actually hadn't heard this mnemonic before, but I like it and will definitely incorporate it into my practice. Again, the five P's stand for partners, practices, prevention of pregnancy, protection from STDs, and past STDs. After you've gathered all of your information, make sure to end with an open-ended question like, is there anything else about your sexual practices that I need to know? Though some of the information and even the history gathering may make you and the patient somewhat uncomfortable, it's essential. Multiple partners, anonymous partners, and no condom use all increase the risk for multiple infections. Try to create a rapport that is comfortable and open for your patient to provide as much detail as they can. And as with any infectious workup, tachycardia, hypotension, and fever should all raise a concern for possible sepsis. In your sepsis source differential, definitely consider PID in addition to the usual sources. As a mini-plug for a prior issue, PID was actually covered in the December 2016 issue of Emergency Medicine Practice in detail. 
Getting back to the physical exam, though some question the utility of a pelvic exam as our diagnostics get better, the literature suggests that the pelvic exam definitely still has a big role both in diagnosing and differentiating STDs and other pathologies. Don't skip this step when indicated. Now that we have a broad overview, let's talk about specific STDs covering diagnosis, testing, and treatment. If following along with the article, Appendices 1, 2, and 3 list detailed physical exam findings for the STDs we're going to discuss, while Table 3 lists treatment options, a great resource to use while following along or as a reference during your clinical shifts. First up, let's talk chlamydia, the most common bacterial cause of STDs, with 1.7 million reported infections in 2017. Most patients are asymptomatic, which increases spread, especially in young women. Chlamydia trachomatis has a two- to three-day life cycle in which elementary bodies enter endocervical and urethral cells and replicate, eventually causing host cell wall rupture and further spread. Though patients with chlamydia are often asymptomatic, cervicitis in women and urethritis in men are the most common presenting symptoms. Vaginal discharge is the most common exam finding, followed by cervical ectropion, endocervical mucus, and easily induced bleeding. Other presenting symptoms include urinary frequency, dysuria, PID, or even Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome, which is a PID-induced parahepatitis. In men, epididymitis, prostatitis, and proctitis are all possible presenting symptoms also. And of note, chlamydia can also cause both conjunctivitis and pharyngitis. This article has a ton of helpful images. Check out figures 1 and 2 for some classic findings with chlamydial infections. When testing for chlamydia, nucleic acid amplification is the test of choice as it has the highest sensitivity, 92%, when tested from a first-catch urine sample versus 97% from a vaginal sample. While these numbers are pretty similar and your gut may be to forego the pelvic exam, consider the pelvic exam to aid in the diagnosis of PID and to evaluate for cervical vaginal lesions and other concomitant STDs. Similarly, in men, the test of choice is also nucleic acid amplification test with a first-catch urine preferred over urine urethral swab. And lastly, nucleic acid amplification is also the test of choice from rectal and oral pharyngeal samples, though you need to check with your lab first as nucleic acid amplification is not technically cleared by the FDA for this indication. Treatment for chlamydia is simple. One gram of azithromycin or doxycycline 100 milligrams BID for seven days. Fluoroquinolones are a second-line treatment modality. In pregnant women, chlamydia can cause ectopic pregnancy, premature rupture of membranes, and premature delivery. The single 1 gram azithromycin dose is also safe and effective with amoxicillin 500 mg TID for 7 days as a second-line therapy. Pregnant women undergoing treatment should have a documented test of cure 3-4 to weeks after treatment completion. Next up, we have gonorrhea, the gram-negative diplococci. Gonorrhea is the second most commonly reported STD, and it affects 0.8% of women and 0.6% of men with over 500,000 reported cases in 2017. Gonorrhea attaches to epithelial cells, altering the surface structures leading to penetration, proliferation, and eventual systemic dissemination. Though some patients may be asymptomatic, women often present with cervicitis, vaginal pruritus, mucopurulent discharge, and a friable cervical mucosa, along with dysuria, frequency, pelvic pain, and abnormal vaginal bleeding. Men often present with epididymitis, urethritis, along with dysuria and mucopurulent discharge. Proctitis, pharyngitis, and conjunctivitis are all possible complications as well. In its disseminated form, gonorrhea can lead to purulent arthritis, tenosynovitis, dermatitis, polyarthralgias, endocarditis, meningitis, and osteomyelitis. 
In both men and women, the test of choice for gonorrhea is again nucleic acid amplification testing, with endocervical samples being preferred to urine samples due to their higher sensitivity. In men, urethral and first-catch urine samples have a sensitivity and specificity of greater than 97%. And as with chlamydial samples, the FDA has not approved gonorrhea nucleic acid amplification testing for rectal and oropharyngeal samples, but most labs are able to process these samples. Yeah, definitely check with your lab first before you go swabbing samples that cannot be run. Lastly, in regards to testing, though it won't likely change your management in the moment, the CDC does recommend a gonococcal culture in cases of confirmed or suspected treatment failure. It's also worth noting that although nucleic acid amplification testing can be used in children, culture is additionally preferred in all settings due to legal ramifications of sexual abuse. It pains me just to think about how awful that is. (sighs) All right, moving on to treatment. When treating gonorrhea, The current recommendation is to treat both with ceftriaxone and azithromycin. 250 milligrams IM is the preferred dose, up from just 125 milligrams IM, which was the preferred dose two decades ago, along with one gram of azithromycin. And if ceftriaxone IM can't be administered easily, 400 milligrams of PO cefixime is the second-line treatment. If there's a documented cephalosporin allergy, PO gemofloxacin or gentamicin may be used. And for those with an azithromycin intolerance, a seven-day course of doxycycline can be substituted instead. In pregnant women, gonococcal infections are associated with chorioamnionitis, premature rupture of membranes, preterm birth, low birth weight, and spontaneous abortions. Pregnant women, therefore, should be treated with both ceftriaxone and azithromycin in the same manner as their non-pregnant counterparts. There's also one quick controversy to discuss here. Go on. The CDC currently recommends the IM dose of ceftriaxone, not IV, and this is because of the depot effect. However, it's unclear if this effect is in fact true, as IM and IV ceftriaxone levels measured in blood 24 hours later are similar. So if the patient has an IV already, should we just give the ceftriaxone IV instead of IM? I mean, it's probably okay, but I'll wait for a bit more research before I change my practice. For now, I would continue to stick with the CDC recommendation of IM as the correct route. And with the continuing rise of STDs and the public health and economic burden we're describing here, I think the IM route, which is known to be effective, should still be used until the CDC changes the recommendations. Next up, we have the great imitator masquerader syphilis, caused by the spirochete treponema pallidum. Like the other STDs we've discussed so far, cases of syphilis are also on the rise with over 30,000 cases in 2017, a 10% increase from 2016. Syphilis is spread via direct contact between open lesions and microscopic abrasions in the mucous membranes of the vagina, anus, or oral pharynx. The organism then disseminates via the lymphatics and bloodstream. Infection with syphilis comes in three stages. Primary syphilis is characterized by a single painless lesion or chancre, which occurs about three weeks after inoculation. Six to eight weeks later, secondary syphilis develops. This often presents with a rash, typically on the palms and soles of the feet, or with condylomalata or lymphadenopathy. Tertiary syphilis doesn't appear until about 20 years post-infection, and it includes gummitous lesions and cardiac involvement, including aortic disease. Patients at any stage may go long periods without any symptoms, and this is known as latent syphilis. In addition, at any stage a patient may develop neurosyphilis, which can present with strokes, altered mental status, cranial nerve dysfunction, and tabes dorsalis. In early syphilis, dark field examination is the definitive method of detection, though this is impractical in the ED setting. There are instead two different algorithms to follow. 
The CDC traditional algorithm recommends a non-treponemal test like the Rapid Plasmid Reagent, or RPR, or the Venereal Disease Research Lab test, also called VDRL, followed by a confirmational treponemal test, fluorescent treponemal antibody absorption, or FTA-ABS, or T-palatum passive agglutination, also called TPPA. More recently, there has been a shift to the reverse sequence, with screening with a treponemal assay, followed by a confirmatory non-treponemal assay. The reason for the change is that there is an increased availability of rapid treponemal assays, and where available, the reverse sequence offers increased throughput and the ability to detect early primary syphilis better. The CDC, however, still recommends the traditional testing pathway, that is, non-treponemal tests like RPR or VDRL, followed by treponemal tests like FTA-ABS or TPPA. This article also notes that the emergency clinicians should rely on clinical manifestations in addition to serologic testing when determining whether to treat for syphilis. For neurosyphilis, the CSF VDRL test is highly specific but poorly sensitive. In cases of a negative CSF VDRL but still with high clinical suspicion, consider a CSF FTA-ABS test which has a lower sensitivity but is also highly specific and may catch the diagnosis. Treatment for primary, secondary, and early latent syphilis is with 2.4 million units of penicillin GIM. For ocular and neurosyphilis, treatment is with 18 to 24 million units of penicillin GIV every 4 hours or continuously for 10 to 14 days. In patients who have a penicillin allergy, skin testing and desensitization should be attempted rather than switching to zithromycin because of concerns of resistance. For pregnant women, penicillin is the only proven therapy. Interestingly, there is some evidence to suggest that a second IM dose may be beneficial in treating primary and secondary syphilis in pregnancy, though data are limited. We also have to mention the Jarish-Hersheimer reaction before moving on. This is a syndrome of fevers, chills, headache, myalgias, tachycardia, flushing, and hypotension that follow high-dose penicillin treatment due to a massive release of endotoxins when the bacteria die. This typically occurs in the first 12 hours, but can occur up to 24 hours after treatment. Treatment here is supportive. Concern of this reaction should never delay penicillin treatment. The next condition to discuss is bacterial vaginosis, or BV, which, interestingly, is not always an STD. It is therefore critically important to choose your words wisely when speaking with a patient who has BV. That's an important point that is worth repeating. BV is not always an STD. So, what is BV? BV occurs when there is a decrease or absence of lactobacilli that help maintain the acidic pH of the vagina, leading to an overgrowth of Gardnerella, Bacterioides, Urea plasma, and Mycoplasma. BV does not occur in those who have never had intercourse, and it may increase the risk of other STDs and HIV. 50% of women with BV are asymptomatic, while the others will have a thin, grayish-white, homogeneous vaginal discharge with a fishy smell, along with some puritis. To diagnose BV, most use the AMSL criteria, which requires three of the following four. Number one, a thin, milky, homogeneous vaginal discharge. Number two, the release of a fishy odor before or after the addition of potassium hydroxide. Number three, a vaginal pH greater than 4.5. And number four, the presence of clue cells in the vaginal fluid. These criteria are 90% sensitive and 77% specific, with clue cells being the most reliable predictor. And for those of us without immediately available microscopy, you could make the diagnosis based on the characteristic vaginal discharge alone. Treat with metronidazole, 500 mg BID for 7 days, metronidazole gel, or an intravaginal applicator for 5 days, with the intravaginal applicator being better tolerated than the oral equivalent. BV in pregnancy increases risk of preterm birth, chorioamnionitis, postpartum endometriitis, and postcesarian wound infections. Pregnant patients are treated the same as non-pregnant, 
or with 400 milligrams of clindamycin, BID, for seven days. Always nice when there's really only one treatment regimen across the board. And that will be a general theme for treatment options in pregnancy, with a few exceptions. Next up, we have granuloma inguinale, or donovanosis, which is caused by Klebsiella granulomatis. Granuloma inguinale is endemic to India, the Caribbean, Central Australia, and Southern Africa. It is rarely diagnosed in the United States. Granuloma inguinale presents with highly vascular ulcerative lesions on the genitals or perineum. They're typically painless and bleed easily. If disseminated, granuloma inguinale can lead to intra-abdominal organ and bone lesions and elephantiasis-like swelling of the external genitalia. Granuloma inguinale can be diagnosed by microscopy from the surface debris of purulent ulcers. Once you have the diagnosis, the CDC recommends treatment with azithromycin for at least three weeks and until all lesions have resolved. Next, we have lymphogranuloma venarium, or LGV. LGV is a chlamydia trachomatis infection of the lymphatics and lymph nodes. This is predominantly a disease of the tropics and subtropical areas of the world. On exam, in the primary stage, you would expect a small, painless papule, pustule, nodule, or ulcer on the coronal sulcus of the penis or on the posterior fourchette, vulva, or cervix of woman. The primary stage eventually progresses to the secondary stage, which is characterized by unilateral lymphadenopathy with fluctuant painful lymph nodes known as buboes. Check out figure 11 for a classic image of the groove sign, which is involvement of both the inguinal and femoral lymph nodes and is seen in 15-20% to 20% of cases. But actually, even more common than the groove sign is a presentation with proctitis. Testing for LGV should be based on high clinical suspicion, and nucleic acid amplification should be performed on a sample from the primary ulcer base or from aspirate from a bubo. And treatment for LGV is with doxycycline 100mg BID for 21 days. So to summarize that section... For LGV, remember painful lymphadenopathy, especially those with proctitis. Treat with doxy. Next up, we have mycoplasma genitalium, which causes non-gonococcal urethritis in men and mucopurulent cervicitis and PID in women. Unfortunately, there is really no diagnostic test for mycoplasma genitalium, and it should be considered clinically, especially in the setting of recurrent urethritis. Treat with azithromycin, but not one gram once. Instead, mycoplasma genitalium should be treated with a course of azithro, with 500 milligrams on day one, followed by 250 milligrams daily for four days. Moxifloxacin is an alternative. Simple enough. Moving on to everyone's favorite, genital herpes. Um, I'm not sure anyone would call herpes their favorite. Why would you even say that? I don't know, it just kind of seemed natural at the time. Regardless, primary genital herpes is caused by either HSV1 or HSV2, Though only an estimate, and likely an underestimate at that, it is estimated that at least 1 in 6 people in the U.S. between 14 and 49 have genital herpes. Hmm, that's much higher than I would have thought. Agreed. Patients usually contact oral herpes from HSV-1 due to non-sexual contact with saliva and genital herpes due to sexual contact with an infected person. Keep in mind, however, that HSV-1 can and will also cause genital infections if spread via oral sex. Localized symptoms include pain, itching, dysuria, and lymphadenopathy, and systemic symptoms include fever, headache, and malaise. In women, look for herpetic vesicles on the external genitalia along with tender ulcers in area of rupture. See figure 12 for a characteristic image. Though symptoms tend to be more severe in women, men may present with vesicles on the glands penis, penile shaft, scrotum, perianal area, and rectum, or even with dysuria and penile discharge. HSV-1 and HSV-2 infections also have the ability to recur, though recurrences tend to become less frequent and less severe over time. It's noteworthy that there's also a direct correlation between stress levels and the severity of an HSV outbreak. Herpes can be diagnosed by viral culture of an unroofed vesicle or by nucleic acid amplification. PCR-based assays can also differentiate between HSV-1 and HSV-2. 
While there's no cure, antivirals may help prevent and shorten outbreaks. Ideally, you should begin treatment within 72 hours of lesion appearance. Treat with acyclovir, valacyclovir, or famcyclovir. In addition, don't forget about adjuncts like analgesia, sitzbats, and urinary catheter replacement for severe dysuria. HSV can also be vertically transmitted from mother to child in pregnancy. Treat with acyclovir 400 mg three times a day for seven days or valacyclovir. And because transmission is so easy, babies born to mothers with active lesions should always be delivered by cesarean section. Let's move on to human papillomavirus, or HPV. There are over 100 types of HPV, with 40 being transmitted through skin-to-skin contact, typically via vaginal and anal intercourse. Most infections are asymptomatic and clear within two years. Right, but one of the main reasons this is such a big deal is that HPV types 16 and 18 are oncogenic strains and can lead to cervical, penile, vulvar, vaginal, anal, and oral pharyngeal cancers. Amazingly, HPV is responsible for more than 95% of the cervical cancers in women. Hence the importance of the new vaccine series that most young adults and children are now opting for. Vaccination should occur in women through age 26 or men through age 21 if not previously vaccinated critically important to take advantage of a vaccine that can actually prevent cancer. That's amazing. And though not as important in terms of health consequences, just be aware that HPV 6 and 11 may lead to anogenital warts, also known as condyloma acuminata. In terms of exam findings, as you just mentioned, most infections are asymptomatic and self-limited. If symptoms do develop, HPV typically causes those cauliflower-like or white plaque-like growth lesions on the external genitalia, perineum, and perianal skin. For testing, there's a limited role in the ED. Diagnosis should be made by visual inspection, followed eventually by a biopsy. And just like the biopsy, which is unlikely to be done in the emergency department, most treatment is also not ED-based. Treatment options include cryotherapy, immune-based therapy, and surgical excision, which has both the highest success rates and lowest recurrence rates. Next up, we have trichomoniasis. Trichomoniasis is a single-cell flagellated anaerobic protozoa that directly damages the epithelium, causing micro-ulcerations in the vagina, urethra, and periurethral glands. With an estimated 3.7 million infected people in the U.S., this is something you're definitely going to see. Risk factors include recurrent or current incarceration, IV drug use, and co-infection with BV. Note the common theme here, co-infection. It's very common for patients to have more than one STD, so make sure not to anchor when you think you've nailed the diagnosis. On exam, the majority of both women and men are asymptomatic. In women, you may find a purulent, frothy vaginal discharge, vaginal odor, vulvovaginal irritation, itching, dyspareunia, and dysuria. And don't forget about the classic colpitis macularis, or the strawberry cervix. Though this is frequently taught and stressed, it's actually only seen in 2-5% of infected women. But to be fair, a strawberry cervix and frothy vaginal discharge together have a specificity of 99% for trick, which is really not that bad. While many EDs sadly aren't blessed with a wet mount, the wet mount has the advantage of being simple, convenient, and generally low cost. While all of that is true regarding the wet mount, it's no longer first line, again with nucleic acid testing being preferred as it's highly sensitive, approaching 100%. And for those of us who don't have access to nucleic acid amplification testing, There are also antigen-detecting tests, which don't perform quite as well, but they are much more sensitive than the traditional wet mount. Treatment for trichomoniasis is with oral metronidazole, 2 grams in a single oral dose, or 500 milligrams twice a day for 7 days. Alternatively, the more expensive tinidazole, 2 grams for 1 dose, is actually superior according to the most recent evidence. For pregnant patients, trichomoniasis is unfortunately associated with premature delivery and premature rupture of membranes, with no improvement following treatment. Still, patients should be tested and treated preferentially with metronidazole to relieve symptoms and prevent partner spread. 
We have two more special populations to discuss in this month's issue, those in correctional facilities and sexual partner treatment. If you are lucky enough to be involved in treating those in correctional facilities, keep in mind that rates of gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, and trichomoniasis are higher in persons in both juvenile and adult detention facilities than in the general public. In general, for patients in correctional facilities, maintain a lower threshold for just about everything. This is just an at-risk population. For sure. Let's move on to sexual partners and expedited partner therapy, or EPT. Once you've diagnosed a patient with an STD, you can also provide a prescription or medication to the patient to give to their partner or partners. This practice is critically important to stop partners from unknowingly spreading the STD further, which is a real problem. Unless prohibited by law, emergency clinicians should routinely offer EPT to patients with chlamydia, gonorrhea, or trichomoniasis. To see your state's current status, the CDC maintains a list of the statuses in all 50 states. In terms of specific partner therapies, for chlamydia, EPT can be accomplished with a single 1-gram dose of azithromycin or doxycycline 100 mg BID for 7 days. And consider concurrent treatment for gonococcal infections. For gonorrhea, EPT includes a single oral dose of 400 mg of cefixime and a 1 gram dose of azithromycin. For EPT and syphilis, unfortunately, the partner has to present to the ED for a single IM injection of penicillin G. While this does place a burden on the partner, it opens up an opportunity for additional serologic testing and possibly treatment of his or her partners as well. Routine EPT for those with BV is not recommended, as the data shows that partner treatment unfortunately does not affect rates of relapse or recurrence. For genital herpes, you should counsel patients and their partners that they should abstain from sexual activities when there are lesions or prodromal symptoms. Make sure to refer partners for evaluation as well. Since there isn't much data on HPV partner notification, for now, encourage patients to be open with their partners so they may seek treatment as well. And lastly, for trichomoniasis, EPT includes 2 grams of metronidazole, or 500 milligrams BID for 7 days, or that single dose of 2 grams of tinidazole. In general, it's always better to have the partner present to a physician for diagnosis and treatment, but EPT is an option when that seems unlikely or impossible. Also, when possible, try to inquire about drug allergies and provide some guidelines on ER presentation for allergic reactions. Alright, so that wraps up EPT. Let's quickly discuss disposition. Though most will end up going home, a few may require IV medications, such as those with severe HSV, disseminated gonococcus, and neurocephalus. Admission should also be strongly considered in those who are pregnant or with concern for complications. Those with severe nausea, vomiting, high fever, the inability to tolerate oral antibiotics, and those failing oral antibiotics should all be considered for admission. But if your patient doesn't meet those criteria, as most will not, and they are headed home, stress the importance of follow-up, especially for those with gonorrhea and chlamydia for whom a test of cure after completion of their medication course is recommended. This is even more important for pregnant women. Chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV, and syphilis are among the many infectious diseases that require mandatory reporting. Definitely familiarize yourself with your state's reporting laws, as most of these patients will be headed home and you'll want to make sure that you don't miss your chance to prevent further spread. Perfect. So that's it for this month's issue. Let's close out with some high-yield points and clinical pearls. STDs are under-recognized by patients and healthcare professionals. They can often present with minimal or no symptoms and are passed unknowingly to partners. STDs can have devastating effects during pregnancy on the fetus. Treat these patients aggressively in the emergency department. The rising rate of STDs continues to be an economic burden on the U.S. healthcare system. Patients can present with multiple STDs concurrently, avoid premature diagnostic closure, consider multiple simultaneous processes. Urinary tract infections and STDs can present similarly. Be sure to do a pelvic exam to avoid misdiagnosis. For the exam, always have a chaperone present. 
Acute unilateral epididymitis is most commonly a result of chlamydia in men under the age of 35. Chlamydia is the most common bacterial STD. The diagnostic test of choice is nucleic acid amplification testing and treat with azithromycin or doxycycline. Gonorrhea is the second most common STD. The diagnostic test of choice here is again nucleic acid amplification testing. Treat with ceftriaxone and azithromycin. Gonorrhea can lead to disseminated infections such as purulent arthritis, tenosynovitis, dermatitis, polyarthralgias, endocarditis, meningitis, and osteomyelitis. Syphilis has a wide variety of presentations over three stages. For concern of early syphilis, send an RPR or VDRL if for non-treponemal testing as well as an FTA-ABS or TPPA for treponemal testing. Tertiary syphilis can present with gummatous lesions or aortic disease many years after the primary syphilis infection. At any stage of syphilis infection, the central nervous system can become infected, leading to neurosyphilis. Bacterial vaginosis presents with a white, frothy, malodorous vaginal discharge. Treat with metronidazole. Genital herpes is caused by HSV-1 or HSV-2. Diagnosis can often be made clinically. If sending a sample for testing, be aware that viral shedding is intermittent, so you may have a falsely negative result. Antivirals can help prevent or shorten outbreaks and disease transmission. Lymphogranuloma venereum presents with small painless papules, nodules, or ulcers. Groove sign is present in only 15 to 20% of cases. Consider Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome in your differential for a sexually active patient with right upper quadrant pain. Offer expedited partner therapy to all patients with STDs to prevent further spread. So that wraps up episode 27, STDs in the ED. Incredibly high yield topic with lots of clinical pearls. As always, additional materials are available on our website for emergency medicine practice subscribers. If you're not a subscriber, consider joining today. You can find out more at ebmedicine.net slash subscribe. Subscribers get in-depth articles on hundreds of emergency medicine topics, concise summaries of the articles, calculators and risk scores, as well as CME credit. You'll also get enhanced access to the podcast, including any images and tables mentioned. PAs and NPs, make sure to use the code APP4 at checkout to save 50%. I'm going to repeat that since saving money is important to almost everyone. APPs, use the promotional code APP4 at checkout to receive 50% off your subscription. Speaking of PAs, for those of you attending the SEMPA conference in a few weeks, make sure to check out the EB Medicine booth number 302 for lots of good stuff. For those of you not attending the conference, just be jealous that your colleagues are hanging out in New Orleans. And the address for this month's credit is ebmedicine.net slash e0419. So head over there to get your CME credit. As always, the you heard throughout the episode corresponds to the answers to the CME questions. Lastly, be sure to find us on iTunes and rate us or leave comments there. You can also email us directly at amplify at ebmedicine.net with any comments or suggestions. Talk to you all next month.